Our scripture reading this morning comes from Acts 2, and just to orient us to where we left off last week, Giorgio has written a nice little summary introduction that I will read for us. <laughs> last week, the Spirit came down like wind and fire. The apostles spoke in languages they didn't know, and the crowds heard their native tongue. Today's passage, there's another miracle. Peter, who was just 50 days who just 50 days before was a quivering coward and Christ denier. Now, with the Spirit's wind and fire, he's a powerful prophet. A former whispering waif stands and delivers the first Christian sermon the world would hear. One of the great validations of Jesus rising from the dead is the apostles themselves. From a dispersed and ragtag crew of unlikely leaders to leaders of the most powerful social and religious movement the world would know. Remember that they're in the middle of a religious festival called Pentecost. Jews came from around, from around the world are there. The same crowd they yelled, that yelled, crucify him, crucify him. These crowds are now teeming with jeers and confusion about what they saw as a drunken show. And Peter stands in the middle of Jerusalem, Jerusalem, where Jesus was crucified. And Peter stands in the shadow of the temple, overlooked by the same religious leaders who had just plotted to kill his and our Lord. This transformed Peter now speaks. Now hear the word of the Lord from Acts 2, verses 14 to 41. <clears throat> but Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, that your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, that your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad, and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried. His tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, 
And of that, we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this, that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children, and for all who are far off, everyone everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. This is the word of the Lord. Um, Children, you can line up over here to head to worship training. Time through third grade. Your kindergarten is third grade. When our kids go to worship training, they learn about all the elements of worship, what we're doing here, and develop a deep knowledge and love for worship. Thanks, guys. Have fun, y'all. So I did my trick again. Long passage. Make sure you don't read it so the time is not put against me. And I had a little intro to it, too, so I actually saved even more time. Um, I come today um, excited about this passage, but also deeply saddened if you have not heard our brother Barry Farnham, who worked and was part of our midst um, for many, many years, uh, passed away, finally succumbing to the cancer that, um, that took his body. Um, and I just want to say, you loved him well. He loved you so much. And if you don't know about Barry at all, he loved uh, creating things, especially with wood, and um, this is a pen he gave me that I've had probably since the third year I was here when he gave it to me, and um, I sign all marriages, certificates, and all that with this. I keep it uh, close to me all the time, and I just wanted to keep it on me while I preach this sermon. (coughs) His funeral will be, his memorial service will be uh, a week from today. In the afternoon. <clears throat> All right, change of gears. <clears throat> Y'all, we've had a hard year. I'm ready for that. <clears throat> uh, between Christmas and, and New Year's, uh, my family, the Hyatt clan, went out to um, do something, went somewhere we'd never been before. We actually went to Kiowa Island, which, by the way, gorgeous. For one whole day, though, when we were at the beach, the, um, uh, the, the entire area, uh, the whole beach was covered in a cloud. I don't mean it was a cloudy day. I mean, it was in a cloud. At some points, you couldn't see 50 feet in front of you, even less than at times. 
we met up. We had a bunch of friends that were down there and met up with them, a large group, and we decided that riding bikes would be a great idea. So a, a couple dozen people riding bikes down the, the, um, this, this amazing site of just like fog and a little bit of mist, but also bright. It was absolutely eerie and beautiful and a bit dangerous. On a funny note, and we weren't even down there with them, we, we um, ran into the Doherty's, literally almost ran into the Doherty's on the beach. Um, but change the scene a bit. What if we weren't on a flat, wide, beautiful beach, but we were skiing, black diamond slope, same fog comes up. Two dozen of us barely able to keep going, treacherous and icy. We don't know it yet, but part of the, uh, at the end of the slope is, is closed. And if we miss the turn, we only have the cliff's end. It's too steep to slow down. We can't see where we are. And peril would await us. What would we do? The answer to that question is that you can't do anything. You are in need of rescue. Unless there is someone or something that stops you, someone to grab us from danger, we will launch off into the air, into whatever is below. Now hold that thought for a bit. We'll be picking it up here and there as we go. So this is truly a sermon that, we're, that I'm doing a sermon on. This is, technically speaking, the first sermon of God's church. Amazing. And like any good sermon, you have to kind of create a, a, a bit of a longing or a, 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 um, a curiosity about what we're going to actually talk about. And Peter does this in his like introduction and, and hook. First, he, he kind of throws off the, the uh, accusation that they're drunk. He's like, it's 9 a.m., guys, we're not drunk. Then he hooks them by saying all the confusion and questions you have about all this fire and wind and hearing and languages and all that stuff, he says, you're asking the questions, but you already know the answer to the question. That's a nice hook. <laughs> he stands up and he says, God's already told you about this. Don't you remember reading the prophet Joel? Amid the, the locusts and all that was going on there, all the, 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 the awful things that were happening, he, he said that there was going to be fire and smoke and blood and darkness, and they were all in danger of peril And Joel. And then Joel says that God would come and he would rescue. And by his great mercy, the Spirit would be poured out on not just Israel, but all flesh. Kids and men and women and servants and foreigners will see things and prophesy. They will see God's rescue and speak clearly about God's faithfulness to Israel. On that day, as you remember, all you have to do is call out on the name of the Lord. Rescue us, Israel must ask, from a dangerous and deadly path. And Peter just starts off the whole sermon with, y'all, this is that day. I'm not sure if there was the, still the fiery thing like tongues on their heads, and I don't know if the wind was still blowing, but there was still power. In the spirit and in the word, 
and in the reality of this utterly transformed human being declaring this to the world. Peter's saying everything that we need to have have happened have had happened has happened. That's what he means when he says last days. It's not like 24-hour periods. It's just everything that needs to be accomplished is accomplished for the ultimate reign of God over the earth. It's we're in the last stage of the redemptive story of God. Nothing more must take place to have God's reign actually show up in power and grace. Now that's the intro. It's a pretty hot intro. But every good sermon has one main point. You might attack it at different angles. You might have sub-points about that main point. Um, when I was training, maybe Chris, was this was for you too, but, but we, it was called the 3 a.m. test. And that means a, a preacher on Sunday morning should be able to be woken up at 3 a.m. from a dead sleep, and someone immediately asks, what's your sermon about? And you have 10 seconds and one sentence. Then you know you've prepared for your sermon. Don't ask me. It's a good general rule. It doesn't always work. But, but Peter has one. And here it is. And I'm, I'm not sure about the last word because I'm not Peter preaching it. But it's this. Jesus is the resurrected Lord. The resurrected Messiah, maybe. The resurrected Christ. You can see it. He opens up. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. When Peter goes into all that stuff about David, he's establishing one thing, that David foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ. It's, I'm reading the scriptures now. That he was not abandoned into Hades. Because God raised Jesus from the dead, Jesus now is Lord of heaven and earth and the living and the dead. He is the true king of Israel, the true representative of Israel. And he has conquered the reign of sin and death in the world. He goes on to say, well, when David says, the Lord said to my Lord, he's saying, there's no way. He is his only Lord. He's the king of Israel. If the Lord says to my Lord, then there's somebody above me. That's Jesus. Whether David knew it or not. And since all good sermons need some type of mini-application, um, certainly illustration, Peter moves on and says, hey, look, this is the city of David. This is Jerusalem. Don't hear me wrong. He was a great king, asterisk. But don't be confused. David is dead. You can, we can go over there and look at his tomb right now. We can dig up his bones. And he says it in this wonderfully, and I appreciate this as a, one of my spiritual gifts, snarky way. It's a sweet pinch of snark. I may say, there's a quote, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Just a little, little, little. His main point is now illustrated. Jesus is the resurrected Lord. And so he ends that part of his sermon by saying, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, Lord in charge, Messiah, the one who comes to rescue. Lord, because he reigns over the earth, he's seated at the right hand of the Father, like last chapter. 
Christ because he is the long-awaited Messiah who would come to rescue Israel, prophesied in Joel and other places. Now, it gets really, really interesting here. Uh, as a person who's preached, I started to like, generally count. I think I'm around 420, 450 sermons, which is a little overwhelming when you think about it. I can tell you what this move feels like as a pastor, as a preacher. Because see, what you do when you're preparing a sermon and, and, or a talk or something, somewhere you some, somehow bringing the scripture to bear, you put your whole heart and mind into the scripture. You try to kind of get in there and start to dig out the beauty of what's going on. And the first thing you have to do is bring it to your own soul and work that junk out, which is why sometimes sermons get delayed a little bit in their preparation. And then you try with all your heart to somehow bring it to you, to the hearers. Because what you're doing is, and this is another kind of homiletical term or sermon writing term, is you're looking for the fallen condition that we have or the scripture has for us. There's some part in which the scripture is dealing with either um, our sin, oftentimes our sin, but also sometimes our suffering of living in a fallen world. And so you're trying to, to eke out and to mine out this fallen condition that's being addressed by the sermon. And sometimes you have to say very unpopular things things you wouldn't even want to hear yourself, which you didn't want to hear on Wednesday when you were digging in with yourself, by yourself. The old timers used to call it, he's left preaching and gone to meddling, right? I've said this a dozen times. If you are, if you don't hear at least a few sermons a year that make you either utterly mad or utterly broken, something ain't working. It may be your heart, it may be the preacher's ability to communicate, it may be both, likely both, but something's off. So Peter looks at the crowd, the guy who was scared to identify with Jesus, the same people, and he says, you did this. This Jesus you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Let all the house of Israel, this is a closing statement, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Fifty days ago, he says, you handed Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ, over to the Romans, your own brother. You know the Romans and their brutal torture and the shame that they would inflict on him. You knew how he would die. You knew that something like Judas's betrayal would happen. You knew from that my own denials were upon him. And you knew the fake charges in the kangaroo court and our leader's cowardice and Rome's apathy to the injustice that would be taking place. And you begged for the Messiah's blood. You yelled, crucify him. You did this. Can you imagine the squirming? The excuses? The anger? It makes, I think, you know, because I get in the text and just start imagining maybe, a, maybe one of the zealots going for his dagger. He makes them squirm, offends their own self-sensibilities with their own self-righteousness. But don't think it's not done in love. Because where... Peter learned this was from the Messiah himself. 
Jesus spoke really hard things to Peter. He really did. Jesus told him that unless Jesus washed him in full, that he would have no part in the kingdom. This is on like Last Supper Day. It was pretty late in the game. A time before, he called Peter a Satan and said, get behind me. That same Jesus who forgave Peter three times for his three betrayals. Jesus who right then had ascended into heaven and sent his spirit to fill Peter to be the person bringing this message. Also said the hard things. Yeah, besides the mercy of God and the power of the spirit and obviously the plan of God of salvation, nothing humanly makes sense that Peter is just not dead right now. It doesn't make any sense. But maybe sometimes when we read it, we put a harshness to it. Maybe Peter's tone or his tears and pleading with them. Maybe it was this deep conviction that though these wounds hurt, they are meant to heal. Right, be said, right before he said, you delivered Jesus to evil men, he said, you did this according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. So he's not just saying, you did this. He's saying, God has got this. In fact, he's always had this. Phenomenal. What kind of confidence and presence do you have to go into a space like that? He says, you're, you're guilty of participating in the worst injustice in human history. But God knew it before the foundation of the world, and God would use it, use your sin to accomplish his purposes. God's plan of salvation was always intended to reach uh, its climax in, in, in the Messiah to come, undertaking what? The rescue mission, the pulling people off the slope. See, every sermon doesn't just need a, a fallen condition focus. It needs a redemptive solution. Also, a little homiletical term. One pastor writes about it like this. The anointed king would come to the place where evil was reaching its height, where the greatest human systems known to man at the time only reveal their greatest corruption. Romans' celebrated system of justice just showed it was rotten to the core. Israel's celebrated holiness and temple and hierarchy revealed it had lost the heart of God, that its holiness was a sham. The Lord would come into these accrued evil systems, and hell itself would wield one great act of unwarranted violence against a person who of all had done nothing to deserve it. And God would use that death to reveal the beauty of his son, the vindication of his own plan, and the depravity of our folly. And by raising from his son from the dead, it wasn't just about the beauty and the mercy and the grace, but the power that God had. The, Jesus is the resurrected Lord. And so he would not just vindicate himself and his son, but his entire plan of redemption. And the reaction, as we saw, was acute, cut to the heart, a blade to the gut. And they cry out, what shall we do? This, my friends, is part of the miraculous reality of Pentecost, because the, the Spirit has now come down and readied the heart to give up anything to collapse upon Jesus. 
It's the power that softens our hearts, and it, it always does it in two ways. We have to see two things. We, we are desperately guilty in our rebellion and folly against God, and God is even more desperately heroic in his activity in the world to bring us to himself. You cannot have one of those without the other. If you embrace just our depravity, it's a bad AA meeting. If you embrace just um, uh, the, the, the good outcome, then it's just like participation trophies for everybody. They don't mean anything. The gospel is bad news about us, but it is good news for us. And because every sermon needs an application, Peter goes for it. Repent and be baptized. Every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and the Spirit will come upon you as a gift. And this promise, as we've declared today, is for you and for your children, and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Repent and be baptized. They can sound like scary words, especially when you see them on placards and people are screaming at you. But it's not. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, a command, but it's, a, it's a, a command to turn away. It's a warning. Turn away from your own folly, away from sin, and toward forgiveness. It's not turn around and just do better. It's turn, being away from God and turning towards God who loves you and has the power because he is the resurrection, because uh, his resurrection proves that he's the Lord. The promise of being can be tricky language. The new true Israel. And not just turn around and come to him, turn around and receive the welcoming waters of baptism. The, the, the sign that you belong. The, the, the inverse or uh, adjustment of the sign that was their original Israel's salvation, which was the waters split from them so they could walk into salvation. Being freed from slavery. And you and your children get to receive this promise? And it's what God has always promised. I will be your God and you will be my people. It is the covenant promise of God. And he did not do all this so that he would just be crushed in our guilt, but that we would be welcomed in in his love. He's saying, come join the family. The gospel only makes sense if we're on a foggy slope. It's about life and death. It's about new life, eternal life, or death. The gospel doesn't really make sense in a world where we tiptoe through the tulips of a pretty park. And if you think we in life and death are tiptoeing through tulips in a pretty park, I would just, uh, I'd, I'd simply ask you would uh, consider differently. <laughs> this might be a weird way to kind of wrap up a sermon, and it'll be a little longer. Thank you, Alice. Um, but if you're up for it, and I'd say, even if you're not up for it, lean into it. But consider reading this passage again, but starting in the beginning. And I don't mean Acts, I mean Luke. And just read through Luke until this part, because you know it's, it's a sequel, right? Luke wrote them both. If you will do that, you will see that Peter's loving urgency and warning does not hold the candle to Jesus' urgency about restoring Israel to its true place. 
Jesus shows up on the foggy sleeve slope of the world and shouted, watch out, he did it in love. Stop, turn around. If you continue on this path of living in opposition to my father who loves you, disaster awaits. If you're going through in Luke and you get to chapter 19, you realize that it's just building up and building and building up. And he shows up into, in, 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 over Jerusalem and, and, and his, his, um, this momentum keeps building. And then his, his warning turns to weeping. He burst into tears. And let me read what he says. Would that you, even you, O Israel, had known this day the things that make for peace. But now they're hidden from your eyes. And then he moves from mourning to weeping to a declaration of judgment. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade to siege around you and surround you and hem you in and they will tear you down in the ground and look at the parallel of this language, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another because you did not know the time of the visitation of my coming. His posture changes in that moment for the rest of Luke. He knows after warning after warning that God's own would not repent. Not repent to be the nation to be a blessing to the nations of others. God's original plan always. So he starts talking about things like the temple falling and him being a green tree surrounded by dry twigs ready for the fire. It's intense. It's judgment language. But then we see, and this is, I want this to be absolutely astonishingly, beautifully, powerfully, the greatest plot twist in history for you. Israel had chosen their destruction, but Jesus comes to take on Israel's identity on himself. They have gone the way of violence, and so instead of meeting it with violence, he walks down the hill to Jerusalem. In a few days, he walks up the hill to Golgotha. He takes on the identity of that justly seized city. He takes on the identity of those being torn down. He takes on the identity of Israel, the pyre of dry wood. That's what he does. We must come to see like those 3,000 came to see, like Peter came to see. If Jesus doesn't rescue, we will careen over the edge. That's true of us as individuals. That's true of us as a church. And it's not just careening over the edge in our self-righteousness or cruelty or arrogance or judgmentalism or horrible decisions or violence or any of that kind of stuff in this life, though that is real and he does mean that too, but also in death and life to come. But we must see, just like those 3,000 see, like Peter saw and was able to speak, that Jesus has thrown his body in the way of the careening people. And he says, take I will take this impact for you. I have taken this impact for you, for your sin and folly. And yes, when we hit him, he careens over the edge himself. But go back to the main point of the sermon. Jesus is the resurrected Lord. That's where the power is. And God, his Father, 
And now because of his great mercy, our father raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for Jesus to be held by it. Come on now. And now we are welcome. Because he was that representative of Israel. We and our children are not torn down, but welcomed in to the promise of forgiveness and all who are far off. Most sermons are supposed to have a closing illustration, but I don't have one. That's the reality we live in. I think my only illustration is just be amazed at Jesus. Lord Jesus, thank you for your goodness and your kindness to us. Thank you that you are Lord, that the Father, Father, thank you for raising him from the dead and using all the evil that we could muster against our evil. And for your love's sake, thank you for loving the world so much when it was rebellious against you that you would send your son. And may we cling to him. We pray in your name.